everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. Today we have a very special guest, one of the guys that got me into on-chain, one of the guys I look up to in a lot of ways, just an all-around good dude, good friend, David Poil. Uh, David's getting ready to, to start a new exciting opportunity here pretty soon. Um, and, you know, David has a, a long history in the space and has always been a thought leader in the space as well. Um, so welcome to the show, David. Hey, Will. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you again. Yeah, likewise. I think we did the last podcast on uh, Hans Podcast. That was like two or three months ago, I believe. So so it's been a little while. How you been, yeah. man? All good. All good. Pretty exciting. Good things coming up. So I'm pretty, pretty stoked. Yeah, it seems like, uh, you know, the, the space is moving pretty fast. And you know, although prices has been a little frustrating the last two weeks, uh, there's no shortage of, uh, shortage of new news. What do you think about the whole uh, Twitter lightning thing today? That seems like a a pretty big game changer. Yeah, excited. I think it's one of those little things that, you know, incentivize adoption uh, in technical and and more, more importantly, cultural uh, uh, forms. Uh, I, I see it more as a, as a cultural um, event than a, than a technological one in terms of importance. Uh, I mean, the network effect of Twitter is enormous. So, you know, having that um, simple availability to to transact Bitcoin in, in that fashion is just amazing. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I decided that I'm going to donate all of my tips to uh, Bitcoin Core Development. Um, you know, I think anybody who who donates to me, you know, you know, through the community, I I, I wanted to figure out a way to kind of get back. So, hopefully, that'll you know that'll uh, be a, be a nice little donation to to the core developers. Um, you know, I, I think this is this is like you said, you know, just kind of the, the tip of the iceberg in terms of the adoption we're getting ready to see with Lightning. You know, you already see in like El Salvador, people are, you know, you can you can buy almost anything. You saw McDonald's, uh, Starbucks, all these big names down in El Salvador now accepting Bitcoin. So I think you know, it's just it's just really cool to see that the game theory just kind of starting to unfold. Yeah, yeah, and. Especially in in El Salvador, I think it's a very interesting experiment of having like an actual nation state in praxis um, um, using Bitcoin as legal tender. That's for sure very interesting to see in real time. I mean, Bitcoin is a technology that has, you know, it's very practical in essence, right? It has been battle tested in its 12 year history but you know throughout several uh, social economic um technological um attacks and 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 changes for the better but in terms of solar i mean you never know about the game theory of something unless you try it out in a way so it's very crucial and interesting to see how that that whole experiment develops in yeah. solar I remember you did a podcast a while ago, um, and, and one of the things you said really struck with me was the fact that once Bitcoin becomes soaked into the culture, that's when it kind of, you know, reaches, I, I think it has crossed the chasm, but has really become deeply ingrained into society. Like, do you still hold that theory? And, and if so, like, what kind of events do you think would have to take place to kind of in, initiate that? Because I feel like as, as far as culture goes, it's one of those things where it's like wildfire, you know, once, once the fire starts spreading, it, it would be really hard for that trend to kind of reverse itself. I, I actually think, and I've been thinking that for at least a year or two, that the most interesting aspect of Bitcoin, at least for me, is the cultural aspect. Uh, I mean, of course, it's a, a, a major uh, economical, financial, uh, technological uh, innovation in that sense, but I'm... I'm 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 so pumped and so excited to what it leads to in terms of culture, even beyond politics, and just in terms of culture and how society integrates that technology with itself. It's uh, it's politically agnostic, but you know the underlying has a very very ingrained uh, economical ideas that I I think are very worth exploring in the long term like um you know asymptotic supply uh the, the scarcity model built into it um and i also um um 
think it's going to be a major cultural debate and political debate coming, going forward. So I'm, I'm very interested in that. The breaking point or the tipping point that you mentioned, I don't know. I think whenever you see Bitcoin being referred to, especially by name in major works of art, I think that's uh, a clear indicator that the uh, you know suggests cultural adoption, whether it's good or bad in, in that context. Um, when that sort of day to day gets integrated into you know the 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 writers of of the cultural foreground, I think that's going to be extremely interesting. I know of a few artists that I mean, there's several artists, especially on Twitter, especially. Uh, within the fine arts realm, a lot of it related to the NFTs, but even before that, that were very, very much, you know, that are basically um, using Bitcoin or blockchain in general as as one of the main propositions in their artistic thesis. Uh, um, I've seen a, a couple of ex uh, uh, examples in uh, on literature. I know of a of a very good writer um, that has included Bitcoin in her in her in her novel. So I'm I'm excited to see that uh, when it's published. All that stuff I think contributes to it because ultimately, you know, even if let's say a lot of people don't read. James Joyce or Marcel Proust today or Kafka, right? They are the the people who influence or who influence the the strong writers of today, right? To give you a context, so having that those sort of cultural, literary, artistic landmarks uh, is crucial for any um, any technology getting adopted into the day to day life of society. So I'm I'm looking forward to that. Uh, amongst other things, but I think that's a good indicator as best uh, as base case for sure. Totally, yeah. And I think about music as well. You know, like here in the U.S., one example is you know the whole the whole culture around rap is is very yeah. very strong. So you know, if you start to have rappers you know talking about how many Bitcoin they have, or um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get stack more Bitcoin. I have no idea. I'm like cringing myself out, but you know, somehow incorporating into the music. Um, yeah, I, I think that would be a huge step forward as well. Uh, I, I kind of want to back it up and just give you an opportunity to, to explain to the audience kind of your background and also your background in literature um, and how you kind of transition from that to Bitcoin. Uh, yeah, well, I, my my major in university was uh, Spanish literature, actually. Um, I don't know. I got into that when I was in high school because I, I, I thought, and I, and I still think in a way, but let's say differently, that literature was um, as a way to swallow the world in a way. To if you read the you know the strongest works of art or whatever, you can have like a good thesis of the world uh, while maintaining a multiplicity of meaning about it. Um, and that, that's one of the the best um, the best things about literature as a time investment that. Yes, you, had, you you get to learn a lot about history and, and politics and and the you know the progress of men through time, but most importantly, you get to uh, in a cognitive sense you get to deal with a multiplicity of meaning, which is not very very much ingrained in in, in hard sciences or economics or or even philosophy. Uh, multiplicity of meaning, uh, you know, a, a work of a work that is um, made to be, in a way, misread or misunderstood, or at least have a, a lot of cryptic or interpretable material. That's very appealing to me. So that's why I think Bitcoin is so interesting to, to, to see how, you know, different political and, and cultural backgrounds identify with it. That's for sure interesting. Uh, and the relationship with with money as a as a signal, um, and then uh, it's also very interesting in, in in the way that literature lets you confront your own let's say solitude and mortality in a way because um, as opposed to other uh, fields of knowledge, 
it's very intimate. You're you you pretty much read by yourself, right? You cannot do it any other way. So it's, it's a way to confronting yourself in a way that is very meditative. Um, um, that you know that that's always appealed to me, right? It's very individualistic as as a, as an art form, as opposed to going to a gallery or a concert or whatever. Sure. And was there anything in literature that you think kind of geared you towards Bitcoin? Or like, I think there's several, you know, uh, characters or interests uh, or characteristics or interests that I had when I was younger that kind of made me prone to, to you know, being interested in Bitcoin. Do, do you feel the same way? And, and perhaps in, you know, with, with literature in specific? Uh, the, the, I think the progression went, uh, my first approximation to Bitcoin was more economical and technological as opposed to cultural, cultural and, and you know, the markets as well is, is what most interests me now. Um, I don't know, I guess I saw it as a way to, I don't know. It's very different because I'm I'm much rather known as an on-chain researcher and, and markets guy today. But at the very first iteration of that, I saw it as a as a way to in the uh, you know to claim independence from any outside monetary dependence from either state or private uh, entities towards uh, artistic creation, and I think that's crucial in the sense that. Artists throughout history, uh, in general, or writers, whatever, perhaps less so musicians, but you know, especially in literature, I think historically they've always depended, you know, before the twentieth century, mostly from um, the the mecenas concept of, of you know the Gertrude Stein or the Medici model of you know, pretty much very rich individuals uh, with very strong interest for the arts and then uh, subsidizing art, great artists through that, right? I mean, uh, you, you have the examples of Ernest Hemingway or Picasso at the avant-garde movement of the 20th, early 20th century with Gertrude Stein, um, the Medici's pretty much um, funding all the 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 artistic movement in, in in the Renaissance period, and then you have you know um, most royalties as let's say half private models, half state half private models of subsidizing uh, most of the Western art throughout history. Um, greatest example is you know the 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 Viennese school of music going back to Beethoven and and you know the the the, the Mozart's and the Beethovens of of, of that age. So you have um, either privatized or half privatized, half state models uh, throughout most of the history. And then in the 20th century, you had the development of ministries of culture and all those uh, state models that would subsidize the arts. Still, especially in places like the United States, especially in the United States when compared to Europe, um, I think most of the artists funded, funded privately uh, but, you know, one of the main obstacles any artist finds, and I think it's even more pertinent with filmmaking or comic books, because they're more costly in proportion to just sitting and putting something down on a, on a piece of paper. Um, I think maintaining artistic integrity is very hard uh, when you depend on private or religious or political models that uh, subsidize your, your artistic endeavor. So Bitcoin was very appealing uh, from, from that sense. Uh, I mean, most of my work now is in, as an analyst with, with Bitcoin, uh, you know, Bitcoin's in economics through on-chain and all that stuff. But initially it was like a, a very good case of funding myself in a way and not caring about um, any political, religious, or um, or even aesthetic proposition that anyone else would impose, uh, impose on me through monetization, right? Um, that was my first appeal. And I think it's very pertinent today, even more so. Um, I would like to see artists adopt Bitcoin, that's for sure, as a way to 
to claim uh, monetary independence from any private or public um, third party. That's for sure. Do you think like the adoption of Bitcoin would lead to some kind of renaissance within art? Uh, I've seen that that you know I've seen the case of linking money and art, especially in the Bitcoin standard, right? That's um, I think that there's a chapter by Safe Dean in which he claims that the decay of twenty uh, the the decay of the art, especially fine arts throughout the twentieth century, they were it was directly linked to inflation and. Um, and you know the, the the inflationary models that started in 1914, and the, the you know the the models to subsidize the first world war. There may be a link to that, but it, I don't know. I think I'm not I'm not that convinced that there's a one to one um, um link in there and he also criticizes uh for instance the cubist and avant-garde movements out of which there's a lot of noise but there's certainly heavy signal like picasso right i do see the value in, in a picasso and i i think that book makes the case against it in the in the sense that any art that deviates from realism is not good art i don't agree with that at all um to give you good examples of of pieces of art that deviate from, um, from you know um, what what it's usually linked to realist or naturalist traditions. You know, Picasso himself, most of his work, James Joyce's *Finnegans Wake*. I mean, that it's an, an unscrutable piece of art, <laughs> mostly unreadable. But I think it's one of the greatest artistic achievements of the 20th century. So, I do think. Especially in the first half of the 20th century, we saw a lot of great art, even in the latter half. Uh, most of it was related to private enterprise uh, enterprise models of monetization, even after the war. Um, that improvement, I'm not sure, because I do agree with Seyfedin that the arts in general are in a very de decayed state. That's for sure. But I don't, um, so for instance, in fine arts, I think there's a huge bubble, uh, let alone NFTs. It's a huge bubble that is pretty much monetized or subsidized by, you know, high net worth individuals avoiding taxes at this point, right? That's why you see, you know, the, the, your Damon Hirst and your Jeff Koons going through insane valuations for what in my, what in my opinion is extremely over, overpriced art. So that compared to, and let alone, you know, the, 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 the Jackson Pollocks or Picassos, which are almost invaluable at this point. Um, so I think there's a huge bubble in the fine arts. I don't know if it's going to pop, right? And I don't know the, the, the plays that NFTs are going to, uh, you know, play in that bubble because NFTs make the whole system much more liquid, you know, and whenever you have liquidity, I think there's more prevalence to to have a, a bubble pop as opposed to you know the system we had before where you know high net worth individuals would invest in artists mostly based on name not on the on the work itself in the work itself and pretty much prop up the value of the piece um, as time progressed right mostly tr uh, based on trends short-term trends but you know since the valuations got so propped up and and most people that buy at those prices defend those valuations right with other potential buyers it's it's very different it's very difficult and very small to pop a bubble uh, that in the fine art, arts world uh music i don't know music um you can actually make the case that it's also in in in, in a sort of decadence. Um, but you know the arts have to go through those periods of aesthetic decadence to uh, renew themselves in a way. I don't know if the money would have such a direct impact on good art. 
what when you go back to canonical work, I think it's been several years we've hadn't had canonical work in literature, fine arts, and music, um, and film. I think film is also quite decayed. I don't know. I don't know. I, I one one thing I I can tell you is for sure it's going to give independence to good artists to the link themselves from their the trade-offs that their fields um uh impose on them in terms of monetary uh the you know the monetary limits of their or their field but it's ultimately it's up to the artist right to produce the the great work it may be a, a good starting point for that but you know, trying to predict a, a, an art school, a school of art or thought or whatever, it's harder than the market. So I couldn't say. Yeah, sure. So I want to kind of transition it now back over to OnChain. Um, yeah, of- yeah. Let's get to OnChain. Like, please, please. Uh, I've gone through my art rambles. That's please enough. Some alpha. Please drop some alpha. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you want to just talk about briefly just the, you know, early days of OnChain, some of the early metrics you got. I mean, Man, I remember when I when I first started learning, I would go back and watch these videos of you, uh, Murad, and, and Willie with uh, Tone Vase, and it looked like it was like recorded on a potato or something. You, you like barely hear you guys, and you know here you're going through these like you know very very uh, primitive on-chain metrics. It's just so cool to see you know how, how far the space has evolved, and like I can't imagine how it is for you, you know, being in from from the very you know early stages to now seeing where it is. So. Do you want to just kind of give people a background on, you know, how did OnChain even start? Well, to be honest, I think the credit for the whole field can be can go to Willy Wu and Chris Berninski. I, I think they are the very earliest. They're like, let's say, the equivalent to a Satoshi in terms of the, the field of OnChain analytics. Um, I think uh, uh, Chris Berninski, when he was in uh, at Arc, he was you know, the one starting to explore the, the blockchain as a, as a way to gauge inner economics of Bitcoin. And Willie, he's just like extremely creative guy. <laughs> extremely, like he's like, he has a, a very artistic sensitivity. And I think that um, pretty much made him invent NVT and go back and forth with Chris at the very start of, of it all. I think the second great contributor to that was Nick Carter in Coinmetrics. Uh, where they pretty much try to establish a, a good platform and node operational uh, system where you can extract the data and analyze it and all that. Later, you know, his contributions with Antoine Le Calvé uh, in Realize Cap were crucial. I think as soon as I saw that, I think my, 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 my journey had begun earlier in the sense that I've gone through Chris and Willie's work for almost a year. So from 2017 to 2018, middle of 2018. And then by then, the publication of Realize Gap was, I think, my turning point. By then, uh, Nick Carter had major contributions in the asset, right? And Dimitri Kalichkin as well. Uh, and then I, I pretty much, uh, with MBRV, that's how Murad and myself became like uh, proposers of, of the field. I think this was in the second wave, you could say which started the, the golden age of on-chain where, you know, you see more than dozens of metrics. I think it's, it's up to hundreds of metrics at this point, which, you know, brought on the, the Hans Hog, the, the glass notes, the, um, the whale maps, uh, all those guys um, into, you know, what was a, a, a race to the top of having the best metric possible, you could say by a bunch of brilliant minds from extremely different backgrounds, going from engineering into, you know, myself, literature or you know, computer science or finance or self-taught guys, right? Without a college degree that, you know, wanted to get in uh, and, and propose the best way to look at Bitcoin senior economics. That was very interesting. Um, I think it was like a huge shift away from technical analysis. Uh, in the sense that you kind of have very redundant metrics based on 
similar aspects of the market, all pri mostly price derived, some volume exchange derived, but for the most part, price derived, right? Like your momentum oscillators and all that stuff. So it was a, like a huge golden age that I think lasted from, let's say, all throughout 2019 into 2020. And then you started seeing getting institutionalized, um, mostly by late 2019 into 2020, where a lot of um, smart retail audiences and um, institutions, you know, starting to started to explore it in a very deep fashion, right? To to get the alpha and also to get a sense of. Uh, of the fundamentals, underlying fundamentals of, of Bitcoin, because I think you know one of the greatest institutional misconceptions before on-chain was how, how do I value Bitcoin in the sense. Uh, but the truth is that at a fundamental level, Bitcoin is um, an asset that is fully driven by supply and demand forces. Right? Um, you can go into scarcity models and all that stuff, but you know supply and demand is ultimately what what drives it. Um, so on, on top of that, what, what you can do is pretty much, um, study the behavior of investors, buyers and sellers, uh, engage, uh, from what the market is, is telling you at the moment, if Bitcoin is undervalued or overvalued, right. As opposed to, to Bitcoin meeting, um, a, a predefined number, um, that you know any formula you want to uh, produce to you um you have to confirm that in the in, on the day in the moment um with on chain that's for sure like your predictions have to be uh battle tested every day to whatever you know realize gap coin days destroyed transaction volume is, is telling you at the time yeah like one thing you said i never really thought about this if I was going to go present Bitcoin as a you know you know investment idea to an institution, part of that presentation would absolutely include on-chain analytics and, and showing kind of these underlying market trends over time and and where we stand now. Um, you know, I never have been in that situation, so I've never uh, thought about it from from that sense. But you know, I think I think that's a really interesting point. Um, also, I, I want to kind of pick your brain in terms of. How do you mix on-chain with technical analysis or with derivatives data, right? I think, you know, there's there's uh, this, this misconception sometimes on Twitter where a lot of times some of these very broad metrics are trying to track things over, you know, call it a, a one to three month time frame where we're talking very, you know, super macro, right? And then we have things like SOPR, which are, which are much more short dated. Um, and so how do you look at some of these things in terms of kind of building up the market structure in your head? Uh, and then how do you also combine them with like other forms of analysis? Because I know, for example, you know, you look at price structure and uh, just, you know, some, some more basic TA metrics as well. Well, I guess uh, it, it's, uh, I, I do have a sense of uh, priority in the types of metrics I study. I would say on-chain is first, then sentiment and liquidity, like uh, there is premium or discount next and then the last technicals one of the reasons is because you can actually gauge price movement and simple visual cues like divergences from on chain it's very easy to visualize um i mean that was one of the main divergences in, into why retail uses you know in in equities for instance uses technical analysis as opposed to fundamental one, because their time frame is much shorter than you know your typical Wall Street active manager, but also because I think it's more it's easier to learn, right? It's easier to see a divergence that uh, analyzing several fundamental uh, analyzing a balance sheet, let's say, it's easier to see and 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 to do, especially in that short time frame, right? Um, but with on chain, you have that availability that you can. Um, visualize a lot of significant information in simple visual cues that and in a very quick way right um i i would say that as of now on chain is about 60 70 percent other you know 20 percent 30 percent um 
sentiment liquidity and 10% technical. Technical is mostly used, uh, I think it's better used as a confirmator for entries, very specific entries, especially since I mostly analyze the market in, you know, um, in weekly horizons, let's say, not, not, not um, daily or intraday horizons. Um, so I look at, I have about 10 metrics, I think, that I gauge every, every week at the very least. And then uh, keeping on the dashboard a few other 10 to 15 that since they are so cyclical, like MVRB, right? They give you a signal once a year if you're lucky. I check them. I have them on the dashboard, but check them every uh, month. Or... What's up? Multiple nailed it. You know, that, that's a signal. You know, that's a, oh, that's yeah. an example where you don't get that signal pretty often, but. Yeah, it was like the fir the fifth historical uh, long signal in, in you know in over twelve years. So yeah, it was good to see it working, still working. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, so like, when you wake up in the morning, I, I like to kind of ask people, what do you check first thing in the morning? Like I know, you, like you said, you aren't an intraday trader, but I like you know I when as soon as I wake up in the morning, I want to understand okay what happened overnight and how can I just get up to speed real quick. You just scroll through Twitter to check news and sentiment. Um, or are you just going straight to the, the derivatives data and just checking premiums? Um, you know, kind of walk me through your process. Actually, I, I, I do that. I, I think as a first, well, this is more, uh, I, I don't look at data throughout the day. That I, I think I look at price and all that stuff like three times a day or so. Um, mostly at close and, you know, a couple of times just to have a sense. I think the first thing, since it's so volatile and very much local, so it it does need like a daily revision. It's derivatives premium because it's a very important metric, while a very dynamic metric, right? So keeping a you know an intraday check on it is important. Daily closes. For for the on-chain stuff, I mostly adhere to daily closes unless the, the, there has been like a major event, right? So you want to like check, uh, you know, the the hourly resolution of any given on on-chain metric, like SOPR, for instance. Uh, you know, the daily close hasn't come, so they don't have that uh, value in the time series. You want to go into, you know, uh, twenty-four hour uh, median or moving average of that metric to see if you know anything uh, relevant happen when the market crashed or pump or whatever. So sometimes I do that just in context, but for the most part, on-chain stuff, I go through it on daily closes, few metrics, few important metrics. One of those is OPR, for instance, uh, on a day-to-day, -day, and then just check technicals. But I, I, I mostly check the technicals when, whenever I... I I want to assess an entry or exit of something as opposed to anything major. Um, I may go on the daily chart to see, let's say, your, your typical RSI divergence or whatever and see if there's, you know, a huge bearish divergence in price after a major pump. But, you know, for the most part, I stick to daily values, daily to weekly to monthly values of, of technical analysis. Um, so, do, you, do you use just the normal sober? Do you use like a sober? Do you check the long term and short term? Or I actually, uh, I mostly use the the three versions. Uh, I think on Glassnode they have your traditional one, the adjusted one, which I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. The one uh, it, it selects for one hour uh, transactions. And then the, the entity adjusted, which I think it's the more accurate. So I mostly check and validate everything with a with entity adjustment. Um, but I check all three just to see if there's something there. And I try to go, you know, double checking uh, Bitcoin and ETH, for instance. You know, so far, you know, assets are clearly correlated. So whenever you try to engage a bottom, you want to see it in ETH as well. Let's say. Right, as opposed to just Bitcoin, especially with the available metrics like SOPR, um, and so on and so on. And then after on-chain, I also look at other aspects of sentiment and liquidity, mostly you know funding rates and premium 
perpetual premiums, but also open interest. I think open interest is crucial to get a sense of how, let's say, overheated the market is in any direction. Uh, it's also a great predictor for volatility, right? So whenever you have huge amounts of open interest and low volatility, you can ex expect an, an expansion um, and so on. And liquidations, of course, especially after a huge pump or uh, price drop, it, it's important to see that how, how much of that levered interest got wiped off the market. Sure, like I think one example would be whatever, two or three weeks ago when we had that twenty percent down day, uh, and you know you had basically seen futures open interest you know skyrocket along with funding. Um, although funding wasn't at you know where it was earlier this year, when you look at futures open interest both in BTC and USD terms, it was up pretty substantially um, over those you know days leading up to the event. So. Um, no, and in May, actually, in in May, when you saw the the, the May the fifty percent crash in May, as it was going down, so it, it was like the initiation of a trending move, right? Uh, even as it was going down, funding you kind of saw saw it going to negative a little bit, but kind of not in love and and dancing around between flip, you know, flipping between. They're basically trying to catch catch it on the exactly. Right, exactly. So, and and you have extremely high open interest as he was going down. So he was like, no, no, no. It's just longs getting in. They're gonna get liquidated. They have to get liquidated and wiped out before we can bottom. And that's I actually tweeted about it. Uh, you know, at, at the, the middle of the collapse, uh, you have some good sense of capitulation, but open interest it's still exceedingly high. So I don't think it's over. Uh, and yeah, it, it collapsed. I don't know how much after that after that tweet, but yeah, it, it kept going down for a little bit, and then finally, when you have complete wipeout of long up and in interest, you 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 actually found a bottom. Yeah, I think like it was difficult for me at least. I don't want to speak for you to to predict that early part of the move, but once once we did start going down, you started to see funding so pretty positive, and you were looking at futures up in interest. I think. It was, it was fairly obvious that we were going to perhaps go lower. Like I remember when, when we started the cascade, we kind of bounced around, you know, the like 40K or like the upper 30s off like 38K initially. And I remember go, like right before I went to bed, I said, I'm going to wake up and this thing's going to be way lower. And I woke up and we were down at like 30, 32K. It was actually yeah. like right when we had that last, you know, leg down. So um, I, I want to ask you, you know, what, what is your current market, you know, uh, outlook, and and what has kind of your been your timeline in terms of um, you know an on-chain perspective over the last couple months, and and where do you think we stand from a more macro perspective as well? Um, I'm optimistic for. I'm optimistic, but not. Let's say I'm healthily skeptical of a super cycle, but I'm optimistic in in the midterm at the very least. Um, I, I do think that we saw a good capitulation slash uh, deleveraging event in May. We had several months to build a very healthy bottom with negative premium and very good on-chain metrics, you know, turning bullish again. Um, now we're fighting against, you know, your usual resistances and all that stuff. And you have, you know, your few days to a week of distribution before the latest um, correction. But right now, it's looking healthy. I mean, long-term and mid-term, and even short-term stuff like SOPR are looking extremely healthy. So on-chain is good. Um, derivatives at discount pretty much across the board right now, including Binance, which is uncommon, um, and which had like a huge premium in the last few weeks. I'm very optimistic. I think it's, it's it's looking good without making any uh, you know price goals or whatever. But I'm optimistic, short term, mid term, and uh, long term. When I say long term, meaning multi years. Uh, I I I still expect the cyclicality of Bitcoin to play out in the bear market. I don't know when that's gonna come, uh, and at you know out of which top in terms of price prediction. Um, like that's unpredictable in Bitcoin. Whatever your your price uh, 
is sometimes that get double or triple X at least. So I'm not sure. I'm going to timestamp the video and say David Quell calls for $10 million Bitcoin. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, <laughs> And not 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 in the near future, but maybe someday. I'm not sure. <laughs> maybe someday. So, like, I want to ask you: Do you think we move away from the four-year cycle, or do you think that's just now kind of this uh, psychological thing? Like, when I talk to Willie or Checkmate, they're very against the four-year cycle. They think now we're kind of becoming going to become kind of this free-floating asset, very similar to the S and P. We see. You know, a bit more dampened volatility, um, but we no longer have you know these very clear you know put Bitcoin on a logarithmic scale and just see these clear flowing four-year cycles. Um, I, I kind of I see arguments for both, but I tend to to stand with uh, Check and Willie just because I don't think the the sell pressure for miners is is relevant anymore. Uh, you know, I think especially if you get like an ETF, for example, they're selling pressure. You know, let's say they're selling you know two percent of their holdings like Grayscale. Uh, and, and taking, you know, using that as, as a management fee, and that that sell pressure is going to be much more substantial than anything for miners, especially now that you see miners not really selling because they have, you know, access to the capital market. So, uh, what is, what is kind of your mental framework for that? Yeah, I agree in the sense that miners may be um, not not a, a an important actor in terms of selling pressure, and that's for sure. That's very clear, especially in this having right. Uh, that transfer to exchanges, financial instruments, and the new institutional money coming in, which you know it's holding a lot of the supply, uh, or increasingly so, a lot of the supply, and OGs as well. But you know, selling pressure can come from anywhere. <laughs> like the, the the case of miners not having that in, that much influence on the market is now no counter argument for you know active managers in Wall Street who are optimistic on Bitcoin, but they still active manage, right? They still take profits. Uh, OGs do so as well, um, especially when they see extreme exuberance in the market, like anyone would do, especially if you have, you know, six, five, six, seven, 12 years of experience holding Bitcoin, right? Sometimes you take profits. <laughs> uh, you take precautions at least to let's say have a, a good a good base to survive any any bear market right um so and you know i do think bitcoin is always going to have extremely strong holders um i think a lot of them if not the majority are going to be the you know your typical early adopters have stick with it for 12 years now why wouldn't they stick with it for several more and i do think that there's a case for uh, having a, let's say, more intelligent market because the investors handling Bitcoin now are more institutionals and long-term thinkers as opposed to retail. So you have, uh, you know, you, you may claim that that reduces the probability of a bu bubble developing and then popping. But... Um, I mean, institutions do FOMO as well. I mean, it's clear for, you know, since, you know, the early 20th century, you've had severe bubbles, <laughs> right? In the, in the S&P, in the Dow. Uh, so there's an underlying um, nature in, in, in humanity that always makes up for cyclicality in markets for... Uh, you know what? What uh, if you want to call it for animal spirits in the market, for booms and busts, um, and you know, I, I think it's part of uh, of of Bitcoin's maturity to accept itself as an asset that goes through that um, very human experience of you know pumping and dumping markets uh, and having that cyclicality. So if you think long term, you know, Bitcoin is one of the most interesting and important technologies you can invest in, right? But discounting cyclicality from it, I think selling pressure can come from any type of market, 
market actor holding significant amounts of, of supply. And uh, I think it's going to end up being about the active manager um, assessing Bitcoin as it goes forward. But, you know, I think it's healthy to accept that Bitcoin may look like any other asset in, in that sense, in that sense of going up and down and having healthy corrections, as opposed to to an S&P, which just keep, keeps going up. I think it's healthier to have corrections um, even for for a year or two than just keep going and going up. Sure, yeah. uh, so I, I'm not sure. I think when you have these major corrections, it's basically building a stronger and stronger base of hodlers, right? Because every time, you know, you have, you have this big bull run, you get all these new market entrants, and then we have, you know, this major drawdown, it basically wipes clean the slate of all the people that are just in here for speculative purposes. And then you have this higher base on at the very full, you know, at the very bottom that came in through the, you know, the, the big bull run. And then they kind of build that next floor to move even higher. I think it's, it's really interesting when you plot out two things. So first of all, when you look at short-term and long-term holders, you see that dynamic that you were talking about a minute ago, where, you know, you head into the bull run, you have these older, you know, more experienced market participants start to trim their holdings. They don't sell the absolute top, but they don't care because they accumulate through the whole uh, bear market. So, you know, they're slowly distributing their coins throughout the bull run as retail or, you know, new market participants come in, which is defined by the, the short-term holder metric. You see that increase, you know, into the into the peaks of, of bull runs and then declining back into the bear market. So when you plot both of those out, you see this very clear kind of, you know, pattern pattern like that it, anybody listening on podcast won't be able to see what i do with my hands but they diverge from each other and, and you know there's almost this mean reversion within the two where you know smart money sells into strength accumulates into weakness and then vice versa with, with the short-term holders uh, one other thing that you said was interesting was uh, when, when you're talking about you know kind of the fact that it doesn't matter who who has the supply as long as someone has a substantial amount you know they can they can potentially uh you know, shape the market in a way when you, when you plot out, you know, all the entities, let's say below 10 BTC, um, and then divide that by uh, the, the overall circulating supply, it's basically showing the, the, the portion of supply held by retail, let's say. Um, over time, that's, that's up only. And you see this spike once again, like as we have these big bull runs, but over time, this is literally just trending up and to the right. And then when you do the same thing, but with whales, and then you filter out exchanges and grayscale, what you see over time is the complete opposite. You know, it's basically going from the top left of the screen down to the bottom right. So what I'm trying to get at is just the fact that you have this supply, you this healthy, um, you know, supply distribution trend where it's it's nowhere near perfect. Like if you had a Gini coefficient for Bitcoin, it wouldn't be perfect right now. It still is fairly concentrated. But for an asset that's only 12 years old, I would say that it's fairly healthy. And also it's definitely headed in the right direction. Yeah, well, the whole argument about the Gini coefficient um, being extremely high, um, I think it's overplayed because you know uh, an entity doesn't equal, doesn't equal an individual. There's a lot of nuance in, in those addresses, right? I think that's understood to some extent by now. So you know, whenever you have the ar argument about um, Bitcoin having the same Gini coefficient of North Korea, that's an, an absolute um, lie, <laughs> an absolute lie. Um, so that's first. Second, um, you may claim that Gini coefficient of Bitcoin is not ideal. I would say it's fair, right? It should, uh, it should have, you know, early adopters that assume risks early than everyone else, I think, they should have greater ownership rights, you could say. And I think it's a fair system to distribute um, supply. But even more importantly, um, the trend of distribution of supply, it's extremely healthy and has been for 12 years, uh, precisely for, for the two charts that you mentioned, right? I mean, that's exactly what adoption is, <laughs> not anything else. Um, so as long as that trend continues, it's perfect. I, I do expect it to continue. It's just a natural thing about adoption curves. Um, supply is going to get distributed, and even more so when coins get lost and all that stuff. And ultimately, you know, going back to a narrative, 
of Bitcoin for serving a store of value than medium of exchange. It's very important to to have that sense that you know you you need to have supply dist distributed among actor participants um, to you know have counterparties uh, out of which to transact from, right? Um, and then, so yeah, I do expect. Uh, I like that. I, I think it's a fair system. I think it's been on a very healthy trend for 12 years, a trend which I expect to continue. Um, and yep, that's about it on that. I have another question. So when you look at the behavior of whales, there's this interesting pattern I've noticed where since call it mid-July, whales have been accumulating pretty heavily. And I'm defining that as all the entities over a thousand BTC then filtered out for exchanges, QBTC, grayscale, and the purpose CTF. Um, they've been accumulating, you know, pretty heavily over that time span. While the number of, you know, the number of whales to so the number of entities over a thousand BTC has been pretty flat. Meanwhile, earlier in the year, when we were in, you know, late last year, call it December to January time span, you saw this huge uptick in the number of whales along with their holdings. What do you kind of make of that? Just the fact that it's fewer larger market participants, because you know, as you mentioned, one entity doesn't equal one person, right? Either, you know, in some cases, exchanges, um, also they could just be custody solutions. So, you know, although the number of whales may not be ticking up, it could just be, you know, Fidelity Digital, you know, uh, asset, you know, custody service. And they're just, you know, being a client for, for you know, a hundred different whales. You know, it, it it's hard to kind of uh, come to any conclusions through that. But I do find it interesting that earlier in the year you saw this increase in in both the holdings and number of whales. While now you're seeing increase in the holdings, but not the number of whales. Um, that last part is a good point, and I and I have to look at the charts to to get the full nuance of that. That's actually interesting now that you bring it up. Uh, it's been a while since I checked that chart. Um, well, you know, at the very least, you can claim that. Institutions are getting in with all that narrative. Let's let's just leave it at that. In the sense that, even if it's custodians and large entities uh, holding that supply, whether exchanges, mostly custodians, I think, I mean, it's all linked to institutional new money, which I think is very provable on chain and very healthy. Uh, I mean, that's what uh, what you lacked all throughout 20, 2018 and most of twenty nineteen, right? Uh, it's not until the inflationary hedge narrative um, got, you know, major momentum that you saw that institutional heavy new money driving into the asset. Um, no new wealth. That's interesting. I don't know if there's a cap on Bitcoin's custodianship infrastructure that may have flattened out, therefore no, not amounting to more entities on that front. That may be one interpretation. The other one is that maybe, let's say, the majority, not all of institutional players already got in, and now they're just driving in with more assets and filling out the Bitcoin price movements with active management. So, and this is not to say that there's a lack of interest of institutions, the act, you know, it may be capped momentarily, right? Because if we break all-time highs, I'm sure there's going to be more interest about it, right? So that may be a, another interpretation, but but I, and I have to look at the charts again to, to have like a full sense of what's going on. Sure, yeah, I think that's, that's really insightful. One thing that I thought was, was really important you mentioned was when you got past that, that, you know, 2017 peak, it seemed like a lot of the, granted I wasn't around then, but, seemed like a lot of the institutional interest that was kind of, you know, there was chatter about just completely died off once price died off. Whereas now it seems like we had this 50 plus, you know, percent correction. And it seems like the march of institutional interest hasn't slowed down at all. You know, we continue to see interest from, you know, you had like Wells Fargo announced they're doing something with Bitcoin, Goldman Sachs, uh, JP Morgan, all the, all these big names. And these are, you know, all these announcements are coming while we're you know down 40, 50%. So it seems like a lot of this stuff is now in place. It's just 
you know, it's, it's, it's taking time and perhaps this was initiated, you know, in the middle of last year, but granted, you know, it, it doesn't seem like you're seeing that interest slow down, even though price has kind of stalled out. Um, well, two things on that. The first one is, I think you have a much healthier market structure in general today than in 2017. It was extremely evident, and I think for most institutions and, and active managers and and that sort of you know psychological profile that you know the the, the price was in a bubble. It went up too fast. It, it was as simple as that. It went up too fast in too short a time. That's it. Uh, so it may brought on a lot of interest into the asset, but that's one of the the other things that uh, I mentioned in the MVRB, the MVRB article I wrote a couple three years ago, which is game theoretically, in a way, one of the main cases you can make for Bitcoin adoption. It's been its extreme volatility in the sense that whenever you have those bubbles, everyone knows about it. It's like a, an advertisement system inherent in the Bitcoin price. So every, every single person knows about it. But then the ones who stick through it, whether institutions or retail or early adopters, those are the ones who are, um, you know, um, who benefit from buying the bottoms and sticking through a bear market and, and you know, having some interest in it while it's not interest to most people, interesting to most people. So I think it's a it's a an advertise inherent advertisements advertisement system that Bitcoin has in in its price um, discovery, which of course Satoshi could could have never predicted. But that's one of the reasons I think cyclicality is very important to the health of Bitcoin, because whenever price goes to all time highs, goes to X. 3x, whatever, everyone hears about it. And then you have the, the long-term holders, you know, high time preference people going into it, you know, little by little throughout two, three years times, going through extreme whiplash and volatility or whatever. And then they get the rewards as soon as it breaks all-time highs and so on. Now, I think there's some enough historical samples in the history of price discovery in Bitcoin where a lot of these institutions and corporations are saying there's enough base to 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 claim um, an in, inherent uh, economic health in Bitcoin to sustain us onboarding in it at diminished risk. We may not have been early adopters, but I think it's healthy enough and resistant enough in economic and technological terms to go in. That's one. The other one is just FOMO, for sure. Even if it's, you know, you have your 50% correction, you have to think of it in, in a sense of proportion. So you say, okay, I have this asset, emerging asset with cap supply that has just basically outmatched the returns any other traditional asset in the world for 12 years, hasn't been hacked, keeps growing, has a huge base and, you know, some of the most bright minds in the world. And it has corrections, meaning it has great buying opportunities. So they, that sense of proportion of, okay, this thing just goes up, but at a price. And those major corrections gives us the opportunity to get in because they're smart enough to, to balance that out. Maybe it wasn't as smart as getting in in 2011, but it's as smart as getting in in a 50% correction. Uh, so you already have the structure of 12 years of history and you cannot do anything about, you know, I didn't get in 2014. So what should I look for? You know, any correction over 30, 50% at this point. So that's a, and I think at this point, that's the best way to, to think about it, right? Um, just look for the opportunities um, and, um, think long-term in the sense that, okay, if there's a non-zero chance that Bitcoin is going to get adopted worldwide in some form, in some major way, shape, or form, I should have built at least some infrastructure on it, you know, have some experience getting uh, being exposed to it, 
uh, tinker with it at the very least for a couple of years before the big uh, the big things happen or whatever, right? So I think it's just um, um, a trend which breaches the um, the gap between just the traditional world and uh, the nuances of dealing with Bitcoin in day to day as a business and as a person. I just think it's healthy and and um, let's say standard operating procedure and when when any new and niche technology is um being brought in to to the mainstream i think that's a great place to, to kind of wrap it up uh, I, I don't think that we could have had a better uh, ending point than that so david I, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on we've been going for about an hour now i want to respect your time um you know this has been an absolute blast so i'd love to have you you know back on again sometime in the future maybe you know months down the road um, I want to give you the opportunity, though, to just kind of plug yourself in and, and some of the stuff that you're working on that you want to let people know about. Uh, just Twitter, uh, at K- uh, Kenosha King. That's the handle. My Medium articles are there. Um, yeah, that's about it. Awesome. Well, thanks, man. Take care. Yeah, take care. Thank you.